Welcome to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast that takes you freewheeling down the great internet rabbit hole of trivia. Each week we pick a starting point and then who knows where all the twists, turns and tangents will take us. But we'll be sure to unearth a treasure trove of frivolous facts that will be as fascinating as they are, well, useless. When One Thing Leads to Another is produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. Our theme music is by Justin Mitchell. This is episode 10, Oven Drama. We had fun and games in our house last week, didn't we? Uh, well, can you be more specific? Do you remember when I turned on the oven and tripped the entire oh, house's yes. electrics? Oh, yes, that was dramatic. Yeah, and it was baffling for a considerable amount of time as it just kept doing it. We didn't know why, did we? That's correct. Anyway, I'm not going to spend the next 15 minutes rambling on about the electrics in our house. Oh, what a shame. That would be absolutely mesmerising, I'm sure. Suffice to say, we got a man in and now we have a shiny new oven. Yeah, we can actually see through the uh, glass window, (laughs) which is a first for this house. It's a novelty. Anyway, this led me to think, probably a little bit more than I should, about ovens and how lucky we are (laughs) to have such things. So I embarked on a little trip into a great oven-based rabbit hole. I'm intrigued. Did you know humans started cooking stuff somewhere between 1.8 million and 400,000 years ago? Now, I know that's very large. That's a very large. (laughs) They're um, hedging their bets there, aren't they? They are, rather. uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a nice wide spectrum of possibility, isn't it? Exactly. And according to Harvard primatologist Richard Wrangham, the biggest revolution in the human diet wasn't when we started eating meat, but when we started cooking, as pounding and heating food pre-digests it. Did you know that? So our pre-digests yeah, it. Yeah, so our guts spend less energy breaking it down, absorb more than if the food were raw, and thus extract more fuel for our brains. Although he suggests we're victims of our own success as we've got so good at processing food, we now often take in more calories than we need and we aren't quite the lithe, alert, energetic beings we once were, running and catching our own dinner. We just sit on a couch binge-watching Netflix, eating a load of old tut. Yeah, so um, I was looking at the unhealthy things we eat, and apparently each year the Centre for Science in the Public Interest hands out tongue-in-cheek awards to what they call America's most unhealthy restaurant meals. Okay. The winner is a burger dish called the Monster Meal, right? which consists of a peppercorn burger, bottomless steak fries and a monster salted caramel milkshake. That sounds pretty bad in itself, a monster salted caramel milkshake. The damage? Go on. 3,540 calories. Well, that is plain ridiculous. Yeah, and 69 grams of saturated fat, which is more than three days worth. Oh, man. In one meal. You're going to have to eat lettuce leaves for the next couple of weeks to uh, balance that one out. Exactly, yeah. And on the flip side, do you know what the healthiest diet in the world is? You mean as in from a a certain country? Sort of, yeah, an area, country. I don't. I'll have a guess. I'm going to say Japan. Yeah, that is one of the healthiest, actually. But it's largely agreed that the Mediterranean diet also is the healthiest. Okay. And which, of course, is primarily plant-based. 
includes daily intake of whole grains, olive oil, fruits, vegetables, beans and other legumes, nuts, herbs and spices. And um, other foods like animal proteins are eaten in smaller quantities with the preferred animal protein being fish and seafood. Right. So I went further down the rabbit hole then when I started delving into cookery and more specifically chefs. Do you have a favourite chef? Well, yes, of course I do. Delia Smith. Oh, of course it's Delia. How could I have who, forgotten? Who else could it be? Lesby Avenue! Come on! I thought you, maybe you might have um, mentioned Keith Floyd because I stumbled across uh, the marvellously madcap Keith Floyd. I used to enjoy watching Keith Floyd, not because of the cooking or yeah. the food at all. He was just very entertaining. Yeah, he really was. And I spent a very happy hour or so reading about his life. Do you know he wasn't a trained chef? Oh, okay. Yeah, he just had a natural flair for it, although he didn't for business as he had a string of failed restaurants and bankruptcy was a prominent feature in his life. That's probably because he was necking all the, all the wine. There's a lot of drinking to do. Cheers. Do you know that on his very first TV appearance, he roasted a guinea fowl complete with giblets in their plastic bag? So he slightly messed up there. That can't have tasted good. That would have been slightly embarrassing, I suppose, for him, maybe. Or maybe he, I don't, he probably didn't care, really, did he? He was, he was full he, of joie de vivre. Yeah, and, he, and full of wine, more like yeah. it. But then I fell into a pool of celebrity chef controversies. Ooh. Did you know that in 2017, Gordon Ramsay's father-in-law was sentenced to six months in jail for hacking into his email account in an attempt to dredge up some past misdeeds? Wow, no, I did not know yeah. that. Wow, that's awkward. Which then reminded me of one of my all-time favourite celebrity stories. Did you know that in 1998, Gino DeCampo was convicted of burgling singer Paul Young's London oh, home? Oh, yes, OK. And served two years in prison for it. Oh, did he? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he stole a $4,000 guitar collection... Right. And a much-prized platinum disc. And, he, yeah, he was a 21-year-old waiter at the time. He must have had an enormous swag bag. Yeah. <laughs> DeCampo has apologised to Young. I should think so, too. Who accepted and suggested that DeCampo could invite him to dinner in his restaurant. Good old Paul Young. Yeah, he, and he said, I don't hold it against him. He said it was bad and he apologised and I did get most of the stuff back. OK, good. Said, said Paul Young. Maybe he needed his wrist slapping and he got that. He said he was in a terrible place at the time and wanted to turn his life around. OK. So that's very forgiving of Paul, isn't it? Nice one, Paul. A bit of redemption there for Gino DiCampio. Right, talking of Paul Young. Oh, yes. Next year will be the 40th anniversary of his album No Parlay. Oh, don't. I remember it well. But before that, Paul was actually in a few bands. And one of the first bands he was in was called Street Band. Right. And I don't know if you remember, I think you're probably too young, but I remember it. They had a top 20 hit called Toast in 1978. Toast. A little piece of toast. It was originally released as the B-side to a song called Hold On. Mm. But good old Kenny Everett on Capital Radio liked it so much, he played it to death and it ended up becoming the A-side. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And apparently when they performed it live, they would sometimes change the title to Tits. <laughs> Just tits. tits. And I'm sure you're intrigued to find out how these lyrics came about. Yeah. Well, Young said the lyrics were, and I quote, were made up on the night Chaz Jankel 
who the hell's Chaz Jankel, you may ask? He was mm. one of Ian Jury's blockheads right. um, who went on to produce the record. Right. Um, he came to see us at the John Bull Pub in Chiswick and he was scheduled to produce us. Believe it or not, it all came about because we had a novice road crew at the time and not one of them could change a guitar string. Oh. <laughs> Rather begs the question why on earth they had a job as a road crew. But anyway, we won't go into that. Now, when the rhythm guitar player bust a string, he had to go off and do it himself. And the rest of the band started busking on a tune called Lover, mm. uh, the jazz standard mm. that he'd heard sung by Tony Bennett. Mm. So he says, rather than just standing there like a plonker, his words, I started scatting over the rhythm and arrived at the word toast. <laughs> However, interestingly, the lyrics are credited to Bernard Kelly, which oh. Young explained, quote, we credited it, we credited it, cool, you can't, I can't credited. say it. Credited, oh, I can't say it either. We credited it, we, <laughs> no. we credited it, that is not easy credited to say. Credited it. We credited it to our manager as our publishing was frozen and never saw a penny from it, oh, he claims. Wh yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. he, that was just, came about by him sort of... He was just vibing. Um, vibing, improvising, and um, didn't get a penny for it. That's what he claims. Something else Paul Young did before his solo career took off. Um, do you remember Black Coffee in Bed, the Squeeze song? Coffee Paul Young sings backing vocals on that. Does he? Yeah, with none other than Elvis Costello. Well, how about that? I did not know that. That's good facts. It is good facts because in the video, it's made to look like it's members of Squeeze doing the backing vocals, but um, Glenn Tilbrook said, no, actually, it was um, Paul oh. Young and Elvis Costello. Well... Flippin' egg. Yeah. Anyway, um, I mentioned the music video. The video was directed by Steve Barron. Steve Barron. Have you heard of Steve Barron? I don't think I have. Well, he directed loads of really famous and arguably iconic music videos in the 80s, which were a key part of the MTV era. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, he directed... Money for Nothing by the Dire Straits. Oh, yeah, okay, that was Aha, a big one. Aha, Take On Me. Oh, wow, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Human League, Don't You Want Me. Oh, right, blimey, okay. Yeah. And Michael Jackson saw that video, Human League, Don't You Want Me, right. and got in touch and, and asked him to direct Billie Jean. Good grief. Yeah, so he directed Billie Jean as well. And um, also, um, Take On Me, you know, was um, released without the video, and it absolutely bombed the first time. It was released. And it was then all it was, about the video. And yeah. then it was, re, yeah, it, it was re-released with the video and became the global hit that it was. Yeah, okay, yeah. Well, that is a very famous video, that one. Also, um, after Steve Barron had worked with Human League, he then directed films and directed a film called Electric Dreams. Yeah, okay. Do, do, have you seen that film? That's um, that's with the music of... Um, Giorgio Moroder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, have you seen the film? I don't think I have. It's a slightly odd film. It's essentially a love triangle between Miles, the lead character, and his computer. Right. And a cello playing love interest, played by Virginia Madsen. Yes. And, of course, Virginia Madsen. Go on. She's most notably in the 2004 film Sideways. Yeah, that's a classic. And you know how throughout the film, Miles is really disparaging about Merlot. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And if they want to drink Merlot, we're drinking Merlot. No, if anybody orders Merlot, I'm leaving. I am not drinking any f Merlot. Okay, okay, <laughs> relax, Miles. 
Well, did you know that after the film's release in October 2004, Merlot sales dropped 2% and Pinot Noir sales increased 16% in the Western United States. Wow. And a similar trend occurred in uh, British wine outlets. And a 2022 study in the Journal of Wine Economics found that sideways caused a reduction in demand for Merlot and an increase in demand for Pinot Noir, which led large winemakers to grow Pinot Noir grapes in low quality land and blend those grapes with the grapes grown in high quality areas just to meet demand which wow. ultimately led to worse Pinot Noir wines. Oh, wow. How ironic. That's incredible. Yeah. Okay, well, talking of Merlot, I thought I'd have a little uh, delve into the subject. And uh, did you know that Merlot is the most commonly grown grape variety in France? Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Merlot. Yeah, Merlot of all oh. things, yeah. And I didn't know this. You can get white Merlot too. I did not know that. Well, you don't see that in shops, do you? No, maybe you do in France, but mm. uh, yeah, I didn't know that. I thought that was interesting. Mm. The earliest recorded mention of Merlot, mm. although it was under the synonym Merleur, okay, was in the notes of a local Bordeaux official who in 1784 labelled wine made from the grape in the Libonnais mm. region as one of the area's best. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. Um, in 1824, the word Merlot itself appeared in an article on Medoc wine where mm. it was described that the grape was named after the local blackbird oh. called Merlot, who liked eating ripe grapes on the vine. Oh, so Merlot is essentially, come. the name comes from a blackbird that ate the grapes. Exactly right. Oh, okay. So yeah. now you know. Right, try and remember that so you can bore people at your next dinner party. <laughs> and more wine-based facts for you. Mm. The grapes Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, it sounds like manure, it's mm. not, Meunier and Chardonnay are used to produce almost all champagne. Oh, right. Well, I knew Chardonnay grapes were used to make champagne. I didn't know Pinot Noir was involved. No, let alone Pinot Meunier. Yeah. And contrary to legend and popular belief, Dom Perignon did not invent sparkling wine. Right. The first sparkling wine, mm. I hear you ask, mm. was invented by Benedictine monks in the Abbey of Saint-Hilaire near Carcassonne mm. in 1531 and it's wow. called Blanquette de Limur. Okay, wow, 1531. 1531, that is a long time mm. ago. They achieved this by bottling the wine before the initial fermentation had ended. And over a century later, the English scientist and physician Christopher Meray... But he's English, you don't need to do the accent. Oh yeah, he's English, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, Christopher Meray documented the addition of sugar to a finished wine to create a second fermentation oh, okay. six years before old Dom Perignon oh. set foot in the abbey of Hautevillers. Ah, yeah. so it wasn't, so, yeah, lots it was, of people say that, don't they? That's like an urban legend, isn't it? Urban legend, yeah. Dom Perignon uh, took all the credit for that, mm. but it wasn't him. Um, the Dom Perignon story is that he was originally charged by his superiors at the Abbey of Hautevillers to get rid of the bubbles. Get rid of the bubbles. Get rid of the bubbles. We don't want no bubbles. Ah, get rid of the bubbles, yeah. Dom. They saw that as a bit of a mistake, I suppose, or because they'd always been drinking flat wine, hadn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they'd be turning their nose up and yeah. telling old Dom to get rid of the bubbles. But when he tasted the supposedly ruined wine, he alleged to have said, come quickly, I am tasting the stars. With a French accent, please. Okay. 
Come quickly, I'm testing the styles. <laughs> That's like the hello, hello version of uh, Dom Perignon's yeah. discovery of champagne. I wonder if he really thought it or he just couldn't be asked to get rid of the bubbles and that's why we got champagne. I like that analogy, I'm tasting the stars. However it wasn't all plain sailing because the pressure in the bottles did cause many of them to burst in the cellar mm. and as sparkling wine production increased in the early 18th century cellar workers had to wear a heavy iron mask to prevent injury from spontaneously bursting bottles. Oh. Must have been a bit lively in there. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Yeah. The disturbance caused by one bottle exploding could cause a chain reaction oh. with it being routine for sellers to lose between 20 and 90 percent of their bottles. Oh dear. God you'd be pretty brassed off if yeah. that was the case wouldn't you. And I'm reading here in 2009 a bottle of 1825 Perrier Jouet champagne was opened at a ceremony attended by 12 of the world's top wine tasters. Oh lucky them. This bottle was officially recognised by the Guinness Book of World Records as the oldest bottle of champagne in the world. Uh, the contents were found to be drinkable mm -hmm. with notes of truffles and caramel in the taste. There are only now two other bottles from the 1825 vintage left in existence. Oh right okay. Well, it's I'm... a bit underwhelming isn't it to say that it was uh, drinkable. Yeah. Oh, whoopee-doo. Well, I would imagine that um, I read somewhere once that champagne used to be much, much sweeter. Yeah, well, I'll give it a go. I'll drink, I'll drink anything, me. <laughs> did you know that there's a village in Switzerland called Champagne? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and in 1998, yeah. um, Switzerland reached an accord with the European Union that allowed its former national airline, Swiss Air, to make stopovers in European Union cities and in return Switzerland, which is not a member of the European Union, agreed right. to forbid people of Champagne, population 710, to use the town's name on their products. That's really unfair I would say. So bakers, biscuit makers, any products that are made there they're not allowed to use their town's name, which of course includes the local winemakers who also risk a fine if they invoke the name of their town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the French are very... Um, very protective. Very protective of the Champagne. Yeah. And so in the years before the ban, the winemakers of Champagne in Switzerland, uh, they sold about 110,000 bottles of their light, non-sparkling wine. But now, without the name Champagne, uh, they're down 70%. Yeah, OK. Although, you know, I mean, there is an argument. If I bought a bottle of Champagne, think it was a bottle of Champagne, and then I opened it up and it was this flat Swiss stuff, I'd be pretty miffed. Anyway, um, I thought that I liked this quote from Coco Chanel. I only drink Champagne on two occasions, when I'm in love and when I'm not. Oh, very good. Good old Coco. And also, while I was uh, having a little delve into Champagne, uh, like you. I came across a video on YouTube of Orson Welles. So it's Orson Welles, he was used in an advertising campaign for Paul Masson California wine and essentially the, there's this story where he turns up to film the advert and he's pissed. Oh. And the outtakes are on YouTube and they're so funny. 102 take two. Ah the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired 
by that same French excellence. <laughs> he is absolutely shit-faced. Thank you for listening to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. If we have floated your boat or pushed your buttons, then subscribe by visiting our website whenonethingleadstoanother.com. We've also added some links to things that we've discovered on this episode, so you too can lose yourself down the great internet rabbit hole of discovery. A massive thank you to Justin Mitchell for letting us use his music as our theme song. It's a track called Homo Erectus, taken from his fantastical album called The Garden of Earthly Delights, which is available to buy from bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Acast for hosting our podcast. Join us next week for another episode of When One Thing Leads to Another. Please note that all facts have been found on the internet and therefore we cannot vouch for their veracity.